Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar. Dr. Dunbar is the Blue and Gold Distinguished Professor of Black American Studies at the University of Delaware, where her teaching focuses on slavery, racial injustice, and gender equality. In 2011, she was named the inaugural director of the program in African American History at the Library Company of Philadelphia, and her book, A Fragile Freedom, African American Women and Emancipation in the Antebellum City, was the first to chronicle the lives of African American women in the urban north during the early republic. Today, she discusses her newest book, Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave, Ona Judge, and now, Drs. Dunbar and Bradburn. Well, welcome back, everybody. It's Doug Bradburn here at the Washington Library, founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington here at Mount Vernon, at beautiful Mount Vernon. And I'm delighted to welcome today Erica Armstrong Dunbar, Professor Dunbar from the University of Delaware. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, you've been to Mount Vernon a lot recently. You were here last yeah. week, I think, or a week before <laughs> yeah. with the New York Times. What was that like? Yeah, it was, um, to be here with the Times was... Um, a little surreal, um, but um, <laughs> so important because I realized with the times being here that not only would Ona Judge's story sort of be known in a, in a very kind of broad way, but it also brought attention to the great exhibit that's here mm -hmm. at Mount Vernon. And um, so all in all, it was just a really great experience. Yeah, I, I think that the, uh, and we talked a little bit about this before we got on air here, that uh, yeah, uh, the book is doing extremely well, the write-up in the Times, and the the profile there was fantastic. So yeah. congratulations. Thank you so much. So we're talking about the book Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave Ona Judge, uh, which just came out and, uh, and and has been doing really well with the press is 37 Inc. Yeah. Uh, which I don't know. Yeah, it's a new, well, it's a new imprint. And, um, you know, what was so great about um, this book, this experience, was that I really just did some things that were very um, different yeah. um, from a lot of academics. And aside from moving from a sort of more traditional academic press to a trade commercial press. I also went with a new imprint. So mm. 37 Inc. is an imprint of Atria Books. Right, right. Um, and Dawn Davis is the editor there. And she does sort of a mix of commercial and um, more sort of academic-ish books. Um, and it was just a great smart experience. Smart books for smart people. Exactly. That's what we call it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And accessible, you yeah. know. So it was a very different experience. Um, but you know, at the end of it, it's just been wonderful. Yeah, well, that well, again, great news. So here you are, you're emerging as this public intellectual now. It's amazing. And, <laughs> okay. Uh, and absolutely. <laughs> mm -hmm. When you're profiled in the Times, yeah. I mean, come on. They've been, you're telling me you've been all over NPR, and I definitely know you've been on NPR because we heard some of that as well. So uh, so that's uh, fantastic, and it's sort of a, a trajectory I think a lot of academics would love to see, that mm -hmm. they 
you know, they're, they're professors, they've written their mm -hmm. dissertation book, and then they move on to, a, they're going to write some popular book right. that people are actually going to read. Right, right. It's, um, yeah. I know it's, it's so odd. I I actually never <laughs> thought I would be in this position. Yeah. I mean, I I had such. Um, it was so important to write my first book, A yeah. Fragile Freedom, which came out in two thousand and eight with Yale, and um, you know that was like as you said the dissertation book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, based on... So you'd been living with that book for a long a time. A long time. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I love that book. Um, and what that book did was really prepare me to make this jump mm. to um, a sort of larger audience with what I hope is a more kind of accessible read. Yeah. It's clearly um, never caught as a book that... Uh, you know, has a bunch of footnotes in the back, and I did sort of give in and say, okay, we can do blind notes, even though I don't really prefer blind notes, but, you know, I, I had to give in on something. Yeah, um, as long as we can find your tracks. You can find the, okay. the trail is there, so. Um, <laughs> you but don't have it's, to be a master scout to no, find this trail. you don't. Yeah. Um, I, did, I did the best I could with yeah. my trailing phrases and what have you, but <laughs> it is a very different experience, and mm. I think, what I would say to um, graduate students and other academics who are thinking about mm. really moving into what we would call the public humanities or more public history, public yeah. intellectuals, is that I know I could not have written this book had I not written A Fragile Freedom. Yeah. That that yeah. was the book that grounded me as an intellectual, as an academic, yeah. um, that made me comfortable maneuvering between free black populations in New York and Philadelphia and now New Hampshire. Right. Yeah, you and, had to know so much yeah. about what you didn't know mm -hmm. to be able to make some leaps, yeah. you know, in a story where the evidence is going to be here. There. Exactly. Yeah. And I, there's no way I could have, um, well, maybe I could have done it, but I wouldn't have felt comfortable doing it, you know, making those, you know, taking, taking um, a little bit of a risk sometimes and suggesting what could happen. And yeah. I think... All too often, we're you know we're we're sort of scared to do that as academics with good reason. Um, mm. But I, especially doing early African American women's history, sometimes the documentation is just so scarce, and I may not have a document that tells me what Ona Judge ate every morning for breakfast, right. but. I do know what they ate for breakfast regularly in the 18th century yeah. in New Hampshire. So I can sort of insert those things from the other scholarship that I've worked yeah. on. Yeah, so it seems like an academic is in some ways the only one to do the story well. That's what you're saying. <laughs> well, yeah. right, don't judge. We're not judging. Well, let's go back in time and talk about before Dr. Erica uh, Armstrong Dunbar was Dr. Dunbar. And, yeah. and uh, so why did you want to, so you never imagined you'd be in the limelight, but wh why did you want to you know, go to graduate school and, and write a book, yeah. essentially? Um, I actually did not think I would be a historian or a professor going into, at least going to undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, I went to the University of Pennsylvania for, for my BA and I was going to go be a lawyer and make some money. Mm -hmm. That was the plan. Yeah, <laughs> and, that um, a good plan too. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I, I always loved history. Yeah. And I did well in history, and I figured, okay, well, I'll be a history major. Lots of people go on to law school yeah. with that. Yeah. And I, you know, I met some incredible people, incredible professors at Penn, mm. who, after they got to know me, said, you know, Erica, 
you should think about becoming a professor. And I kind of was like, well, what do you have to do for that? I didn't have anybody in my family who had yeah, ever gone right. off um, to get a PhD. Um, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, Mary Frances Berry, mm-hmm. um, Herman Beavers, just Farrah Griffin, great people at Penn who really gave me opportunities to do research. And um, so that by my junior year, I participated in something called the Mellon, um, it's now called the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship Program, which is designed really to encourage um, folks from up underrepresented backgrounds to think about the PhD yeah. because the numbers of, uh, in particular, of African Americans going into it's, graduate school, is, oh. it's small. Uh, it's, it's, it, there's a huge lack of diversity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, if there's one thing that, uh, you know, we continue. We really need to work on that because I think it's worse than it was in a way. So we go to like a conference like Sheer, and everybody's talking about race, but you look out in the audience and everybody's white. You know, yeah. it's a very, uh, it's it's a it's a disjointed sort of feeling to it. And um, you know, I, I was talking to Annette Gordon Reed about this mm-hmm. as well, and sort of like how can you know what can we what kind of program what can we do? Um, and I don't know if the Mellon program still exists. It does. But, um, you know, as she said, well, a lot of talented people, you know, uh, a lot of talented black kids are going to go to law school mm-hmm. and make a lot of money mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. rather than go into history, you know. So right. it, it, it's, a, it's a continual problem, I think. It know? is. And I, I think part of it has to do with, um, you know, reaching students as undergraduates, right, and, and early in their yeah. undergraduate um, career. And I was thankful that the Mellon program was there for me. I'm yeah. still in contact with uh, them. Uh, but, yeah. you know, once you move beyond graduate school, then the the pool gets even smaller and smaller of folks who actually move on to tenure track jobs, which are scarce, few and far between these days. Um, So for myself, you know, moving through, making the decision not to go to law school and that I realized, hey, I You have nobody in your family who's saying, hey, no, that's a great idea. There's all these opportunities. Well, you know, actually, my family said, we want you to do what works for you, Erica, yeah. and what feels right. So uh, they were supportive. Yeah. They just didn't necessarily have the background right. to help me with yeah. that. Um, yeah. And I was fortunate, and then I had a great community of folks who steered me in the right direction. I ended up going to Columbia because I thought I was going to end up working on Reconstruction, the, the era okay. of Reconstruction. Eric and I said, hey, sure. I'm going to go work with Eric Foner. <laughs> and I got to Columbia, and I thought, I don't want to do reconstruction, <laughs> but he was still just super supportive and mm-hmm. um, still is to this day. And so mm-hmm. I think when I got to Columbia and was doing all the reading on reconstruction, I was like, well, what happened before that? Yeah. Well, you know? and, and so the first book, A Fragile Freedom, African-American Women and Emancipation in the Antebellum City. Yeah, I could see how you could go from thinking about reconstruction questions to looking at those communities. Well, because it goes from the colonial period to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to the end of slavery. Mm-hmm. So not reconstruct, but the kind of Pennsylvania's reconstruction, mm-hmm. I guess, in a sense. So, yeah. uh, so a lot of the themes are still there. But um, the literature on on enslaved women and women, black women in general, yeah. in the nineteenth century is very thin. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not a lot. It's thin. Um, I have great respect for the folks who have contributed. Um, and I'm, I see stuff in the pipeline, which yeah. is really promising. Mm-hmm. But as it stands, there are a handful of books that yeah. at least focus on enslaved women in the North in particular. Yeah. Um, there are a few that focus on Southern history, but um, we, you know, we, still have, we still have a ways to go. And what I'm hoping is that 
maybe with um, Never Caught, which reaches a, hopefully a broader audience, it'll make folks think, okay, we can do this. Yeah. We can maybe do this in different ways. However, <laughs> I think everyone needs to write a book like A Fragile Freedom before they jump into a popular yeah. book. Yeah, I mean, I think that, so you're dealing with the double whammy, right? You've got uh, very few sources for uh, enslaved people mm -hmm. in the colonial period, you know, you, you, you know, in particular, you know, in particular, so, and then you have very few in women mm -hmm. as well. So it, it's, it takes a really good historian to pull that, that together. How did you do it in the case of uh, a, fragile a Fragile Freedom? What are some of the, the sources that, that you found that mm -hmm. were able to help you um, reconstruct these lives of both elite and, as you call them, regular, mm -hmm. regular women in, uh, in that community? Yeah, regular folks. I, you know, <clears throat> they really, I focus mainly on Philadelphia and A Fragile Freedom. Uh, she's from Philadelphia, no ladies plug. and gentlemen. Yes, the, this is a, the this city is a... of sisterly love, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I, in many ways, um, the history is so rich there, and yeah. we have such great repositories and libraries that I was able to really draw from yeah. all of them. So, looking at um, indenture records from the Historical Society of Pennsylvania yes. and being able to really kind of track what happened to women once the Gradual Abolition Act in law in um, Pennsylvania took hold and how slavery kind of slowly uh, was unraveled. Um, mm -hmm. And to look at how folks were actually indentured af in order to, to prolong their period in, in bondage of some sort. Um, so looking at those indenture records are really helpful in mm -hmm. recreating those experiences. But also, I would have to say my favorite um, my favorite uh, source were the friendship albums at the, the library albums, company. Yeah. They just everybody you know, mentions that in the reviews uh, of that book. So because that, they're I never just, heard of those. So, they're fantastic. Yeah, you yeah. know, I liken them to. Um, they're only four, I believe, in existence, mm. um, and they are. They were kept by African Americans, relatively elite African American women, and they're comparable, I, I guess, to sort of like a yearbook. Yeah. So, you know, you, you give your yearbook to your friends to mm. sign and, um, you know, you want the captain of the football team and your cheerleaders <laughs> or whomever to sign your book because, you know, it's, it's important who you have in that book. Yeah. And what we see with these friendship albums is that they're passing them to the most well-known abolitionists mm. of the era. So Frederick Douglass has written in some of them, William Lloyd Garrison, yeah. and then friends. Um, and these would travel really the circuit up from Boston to Baltimore. Um, mm -hmm. And they really just gave this kind of entrance into the lives of these people that I had never seen before. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there was definitely, the information of course is much more scarce than perhaps doing other topics, but there was definitely enough to create yeah. a narrative of what happened. Well, and, and Philly has got such a great story of the kind of emergence of the free black community. Yeah. You know, you've got Forging Freedom and some of these yeah. other classic studies that you could mm -hmm. correct and stand on the shoulders of. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, the early AME church, you know, and which which is going to come back to help you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah, so you needed to do that kind of work to write a book about Ona Judge, who... Yeah. who um, you know, for those of us in the Washington universe, we know this story. Sure. But the vast majority of American citizens uh, out there don't know the story. So right. talk a little bit about how you discovered Ona Judge yeah. and why you decided she, you, you could tell her story. I, you know, I came across um, 
I mean, I'm a Philadelphian, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I didn't know her story until I was working on the, the first book. You thought um, about Reconstruction too much. Well, that you know, that's what it was. That's where my head was. Um, and But some a good number of Philadelphians knew her, and they knew her as, as Oni Judge, which is how she's recorded um, in most of the documents in the 18th and 19th century. But I, I suggest that that was really the diminutive of her yeah. name. And so I chose to go by, um, to call her Ona, which is what she went by at the end of her life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was working on the first book and I was reading some old newspapers, which we all do, um, microfilm. (laughs) And um, I came across this runaway slave advertisement for a woman named Oni who had left the president's house. And Mm. I thought, wait a minute. Hmm. What is this? Yeah. And why don't I know it? I think that's the thing that rang loudest in my mind. Here I am, supposedly a, an expert or becoming an expert <laughs> on this, you know, this field. And yeah. um, I didn't know this story. And yeah. so I thought, well, maybe I'll do, I'll start this. I'll do a little of this in a fragile freedom. And I said, you know, no, I'm going to come back to this. Um, and so I finished a fragile freedom and there was something that was just so compelling mm-hmm. about the story about her life that it just it never really let go of me yeah well wonderful well great so uh so piecing together this life requires a lot of sleuthing a lot of detective yeah. work what's what's the kind of been the uh, what's the kind of most interesting thing you think you you've discovered about her mm. that, uh, you 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 know you struggled with and mm-hmm. there was an aha moment or something like that I think the the most difficult um, two. There were two things that were difficult. One, trying to get the family genealogy correct, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Because there was a narrative that really was very different about who her mother was and sisters, and you know, I didn't actually have it correct at first either. And yeah. one of the things talking with Mary Thompson here was that um, mm-hmm. it was just been helpful. Um, it's really hard doing genealogy or rather the family histories of the enslaved. Um, there were a whole lot of Bettys who, yeah. who were at Mount Vernon <laughs> around the time that Ona was born. But yeah. um, so I think that was challenging but doable. And the other... Well, think, and the other thing I would just add a grace note in mm-hmm. that point is that it is a story in the Washington lore that's been worked on. But anything that's been worked on in the Washingtoniana kind of school it, it, sometimes somebody messes up a detail and it gets repeated yeah. 50 times in yeah. all these different biographies yep. and so there does have to be kind of that sense of recovery of what do we really know about this person even you know? even her yeah. the runaway slave advertisement for her for many years everyone said it was in the Pennsylvania Gazette yeah. and I'm <laughs> looking through the Pennsylvania Gazette every every yeah. page of it and it's nowhere to be found <laughs> and finally yeah. I just start looking through the other newspapers of the time and it was the Philadelphia Gazette yeah. it was you yeah. know so that was like a a, a, yeah. a myth or a, a misnomer that was passed down yeah exactly um, I think the moment what made me feel um, just satisfied was being able to piece together more of her life once she escaped. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. In part because that was the hardest. Yeah. That was when you are a fugitive, 
you want to remain oh, yeah. anonymous. Good point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you tr go to great lengths to not be documented. Mm. Um, and so there were a few, just a few moments where that actually happens, where she is documented. And, you know, they're kind of crucial moments, like when she got married. Yeah. Um, I, I think I had one of those aha moments in the archives when I found a death certificate or a death announcement for her husband, which is totally like morose and, but you know, I'm jumping for joy. It's like, <laughs> oh, okay, now I know when he died yeah. and why. Um, yeah. And so that whole process of trying to piece together a life of someone yeah. who wanted really to be in the shadows mm. until the very end of her life. Of right. course, right. she leaves behind two interviews, right? She's right. Yeah. right, but it's, of course, it's at the end of her life with, um, relatively little to lose. Yeah. Um, so I think that part of finding out um, more about where she lived, how she lived in New Hampshire, yeah. that was exciting. All right, so let's get into her life then. Let's. Um, I don't want to recreate the story per se, but let's talk about, well, who is she? Where sure. is she from? Sure. You know, I'll give you the... What's her st we know her status, but tell right. what's her status? Right. How did that work? So... Um, yeah. Ona Judge was born sometime between 70, 1773 and 74 um, here at Mount Vernon. Um, her mother was Betty, who was a uh, dower slave. She came with Martha Washington um, from her first husband. Mm -hmm. And uh, her father was Andrew Judge. Uh, now, there was, uh, Andrew Judge was a white indentured servant. And we don't know anything more about Betty than that she came with the Custis estate? We know that she came with the Custis estate with her son, um, Austin, and they were the okay. only mother and son or mother and child couple that came. Okay. Um, so what I, what I write in the book is that she actually did what most could not do, and that was keep her child with mm -hmm, her. Mm -hmm. um, and so she arrives as a young woman. Um, and we're able to sort of piece together that she had other children, not, and eventually has Ona Judge. Um, Andrew Judge was a tailor here mm -hmm. at Mount Vernon. And, um, you know, of course, piecing together the evidence about, well, was Andrew really her father? Well, there was absolutely no one else with the last name of Judge yeah. in all of Fairfax, what was Fairfax County at that moment. Mm -hmm. and, and I was able to trace him later on once he does leave. Uh, Mount Vernon, um, but uh, he was her father, and she's described so was physically. Was he a servant? Was he an indentured servant? He was, was he just a contract laborer? He was an indentured servant. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. His indenture had been purchased, actually he went to Baltimore first, and then Washington purchased his indenture, okay. and Washington makes reference to him, of him um, mm -hmm. for some sort of important clothing that, that he made as a tailor for him. Mm. Um, so he was, from all well, that's reports, pretty good. Washington's a clothes horse. He so, was, yeah. yes, exactly. <laughs> and so Judge knew what he was doing. <laughs> and when we think about yeah. it, Andrew Judge was a tailor. Betty, um, Ona's mother, was a spinner and a seamstress. Yeah. So there yeah. would have been constant contact. Yeah. Um, yeah. We don't know the nature of their relationship. We don't yeah. know if it was consensual or not. Uh, what we know is that they referred, they meaning the Washingtons and the account books, all referred to Ona as Oni Judge. Yeah. So she was given a surname, unlike the majority of the other enslaved right. Right. here at Mount Vernon. Um, yeah, what that means is, mm, but it's, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it was clearly he was identified as the father, exactly. which you know, if it was perfectly violent uh, relationship, you, you would doubt. I think mm -hmm. that that would be. Well, maybe it. Maybe. maybe well, I don't we, know. We don't know exactly. <laughs> so, we don't know. And what I yeah. do in the book is I kind of yeah. 
try to demonstrate how how it could be one or the other. We don't. Yeah. It's complicated. We don't know. What we do know is yeah. that she had a surname, um, right? Which is unusual. A uh, very unusual yeah. and So she's um, light. She's going to be light skinned. So she's going to yes. end up with she's certain opportunities. And one of those opportunities was working in the household. Mm -hmm. And so at the age of ten, she is brought up to work in the mansion house yeah. and um, to become a seamstress and basically Martha Washington's kind of top slave, if you will. Yeah. And it's for that reason that she's uh, one of the handful of, of enslaved people who are chosen to travel to New York right. when Washington is, is elected president. So, so is she uh, is she like a uh, lady's maid to Martha? Is she is she fixing clothes? I mean, what is her, what is her kind of range of duties? Yeah. Does Martha have a suite of you know yeah. slaves who are yeah. taking care of her every need? Or she's she's got she does she has um, a significant amount of help. And what we see with judges that her responsibilities actually change hmm. as Martha's life changes. Right. So um, she was judge was responsible for. Mm, making clothing, the work that seamstresses do. And, yeah. and Washington actually reports her as being a um, talented with the needle, right? Mm -hmm. um, but as um, Washington and uh, George and Martha move up to New York and there's more spotlight, Martha becomes a little more mm, thoughtful about her attire and mm. um yeah. it's well, not she's judged more yeah she's in the spotlight <laughs> no no i know but, but yes. i'm bummed <laughs> yeah, i didn't mean that <laughs> but she does she's she's under yeah. um a lot of kind of public scrutiny mm. so she doesn't need ona to do that kind of work she would ona would be responsible for making sure her garments were properly cared for right. what have you. but she wasn't making them yeah. anymore right. yeah. um mm -hmm. there's much more store-bought and mm -hmm. Um, Taylor made things for Martha, but and also the the more mm, intimate responsibilities mm -hmm. of helping with bathing and dressing and hair brushing, those yeah. kinds of so things. More like ladies' maid. You're stuff, you're with yeah. her constantly, and also yeah, there's an intimacy. There's right the 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 labor created. Um, the most kind of intimate connections yeah. around the body, around care of the body, and um, she also yeah. There's such a deep uh, sense of I mean, it's a trust between these two people. I mean, they're well, I don't know in, if in I would close... say well, okay, maybe we'll say there is. I think Martha has a trust for, with Ona yeah. that she trusts um, that she was her top slave, that it yeah. was the person who went with her and. Um, and she was quite surprised when Ona made the decision to to leave, right. to flee. Well, so, in the flip side for Ona is that you describe a world in which there's really not any privacy. That right. uh, you know, right. even so, you know, in the in the farmhands who have their own sure. quarters, they might have time to be alone and away from constant surveillance. But in the house, a household, you're kind of tucked into corners here and there. You don't really have your own space. And that's, yeah, that's, that's one of the That things. was interesting to me because people talk about the house slaves mm -hmm. as having, you know, advantages, better clothing, better food, mm -hmm. more diverse diet, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. And I think that but it's I important that's, that's right. to note. That's right. That's that flip side of the lack of a privacy yeah. in your daily life. And I, that's one thing I wanted to do with the book was mm -hmm. to show that the kind of myth of the house slave as the more favored slave, the lucky slave, mm -hmm. the one who had more material objects, better yeah. clothing, better fed, that that came with a price and that mm -hmm. came with the inability to 
disappear. Mm. You know, there were no slave quarters for those who lived in the house yeah. to disappear, to, to laugh, to love. Well, that and the Washingtons, happen. notoriously, their household was filled with people all, all the, the time. time. <laughs> it was crowded yeah. in yeah. there. So. It was very crowded. So a, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And yet she still is able to escape. So that's uh, She is. Yeah. She is. And uh, So let's talk about that then. So she sure. went with Martha to New York mm -hmm. uh, when, when the presidency was in New York. Mm -hmm. But then she also went to Philadelphia. Now, what was the difference yeah. uh, for Ona to, to be in like a New York City environment and the Philadelphia environment? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because it was a huge difference. Um, I, when they arrived in New York in 1789, there were a significant number of enslaved people um, in the tens of thousands in, mm -hmm. in New York. When she gets to Philadelphia... It's probably up to like one-fifth of the population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when she gets to Philadelphia, um, it's a very different setup so that freedom had been in play for a while so mm -hmm. that when she and the eight other enslaved companions go with her to Philadelphia, she's in the minority mm -hmm. that... You know, there were very few enslaved people. It was on its deathbed, slavery, that is. Um, so for the the fact that, that yeah. the Washingtons brought slaves with them, um, it looked a little different than what was happening in New York. And, yeah. you know, with the with the, the release of Hamilton and everything recently, we, <laughs> we've been thinking about founding fathers and slavery and what have you. But the reality is in, in Philadelphia, there was a much larger free black population yeah. and one that um, was significant. And so Ona grew up there. Yeah. She spent what we would call her teenage years now and her early adult years in Philadelphia watching uh, okay. free yeah. black communities develop, watching Richard Allen build mm -hmm. Mother Bethel, mm -hmm. watching free blacks sell fruit and pepper pot soup in the streets. This is what she grew up with, going to the theater, going to the circus, yeah. and something that she would never have experienced in yeah. Virginia. Yeah, a world that didn't exist in Virginia and even in New York at mm -hmm. that point. You don't exactly. get a gradual emancipation bill until 1799 right. in New York. Right. Um, and yeah, you, so, so, but I thought that was a really nice touch that you brought out that, you know, even for those of us who know the, the, the era's history, I think for the general reader as well, they're always thinking in terms of a sort of an antebellum context mm -hmm. where slavery's in the South and there's freedom in the North and people are going to run North to freedom. But that's, Ona's kind of on the cutting edge of that, and uh, you know, of that idea that mm -hmm. there's a place to run to that's and free. I mean, exactly. That's, you know. And she, what's so great about this, about Never Caught, is that we get to journey the through the early national period through the eyes of the enslaved. Oh. Um, and there aren't many texts that allow us to see what Virginia and New York yeah. and Philadelphia and then later on uh, New Hampshire. It's what a it crazy like. period. There's a lot yeah. at play, you know. Uh, it's not clear at all what's going to happen, I think. And it's wildly uh -huh. different in each location yeah. that she ends up living in, yeah. and um, and she has to adapt each time. Okay, so um, why does she run? Yeah. When does she run? How yeah. does it work? So she um, she makes the decision to run when she finds out that she's going to be given to Martha Washington's granddaughter, mm -hmm. um, Eliza Park Custis, who... Uh, Eliza Parkas' law, who goes on to marry um, a, a man who was 20 years her... Thomas her Law. Thomas this would be law. Thomas Law, This right? would be Thomas Law, who was yeah. relatively new in the area. He was um, 
kind of a land speculator and mm. um, businessman. He'd spent a good amount of time in India yeah. working with um, for the British consulate. He was he was um, he, but he was unknown to the Washingtons, and mm. he kind of had this fast and furious relationship with with uh, Eliza. And she wrote to the Washingtons and said, "I'm getting married, or I want your blessing, basically." Mm-hmm. And uh, George and Martha, after they got themselves together, um, <laughs> they they eventually he wrote back and he said, you know, if this is what you would really want. Then we we give you. And he um, was living in Baltimore. Uh, they were going to live in Baltimore. They were well. It was or uncertain if it was going to be Baltimore. It was D.C. Yeah. Really, Georgetown. So DC's getting developed. Right. So and it, yeah. it's okay. Georgetown, which he was is speculating in D.C. Right. Like out west. And, right. Okay. So they didn't, yeah. and they were actually also concerned that he might go back to England, and that was mm. their larger concern. Will and and Washington writes this. Mm. We please tell him that we don't want him to take you to right. you know to England. So, yeah, uh, we want you to stay here. Um, and so Rosie Zagari is writing a book on yes, Thomas she Law is. right now. So she is. I, I don't talk want to say to her too many lot. horrible things about him, but he seems like a real oh, kind of Oh, he's a man. totally interesting guy, <laughs> though. <laughs> yeah, that's another way to put it. At this moment yeah. and later on in his life, yeah. and I, I appreciate yeah. Rosie's li- uh, work for that. Yeah. Um, so it looks like she's she's getting married. She marries in in March of 1796, and yeah. um, it becomes known to Ona. We're not quite sure when she's told. But she realizes at some point she's going to be given to yeah, granddaughter, right. to Eliza. She's a Custis slave, she's so Custis she's going to stay with the Custis right. line. And so there was some discrepancy about whether or not she was going to be given away immediately as a wedding gift or bequeathed once they died. But it was clear that Ona believed she was going to be given away very yeah, soon. Yeah. Um, Did she know... Eliza Park Custis at all or well or she did yeah. she, was, she, <laughs> yeah. she knew her and that and was the problem that was the problem <laughs> you know and I think there's yeah. there's a um, I mean it's obviously there's many things but it's sort of like what is the well this was the, the trigger this is the straw that broke yeah, the camera this is the right? trigger and I also think yeah. aside from knowing that Eliza was someone who um, lived her life the way she wanted to she mm. was described as kind of fiery and volcanic by her family members. Mm. Um, there's a, a great portrait done of her. Um, there's an image of it in, yeah, in New in the York book. Public Libraries and in the book of her with her sort of arms crossed and looking very... Um, she very modern to me. It's yeah, like, she uh, was, she's a fierce, fierce look. And so, you know, in many ways, Ona knew her. And Ona wrote, or rather reported in an interview later, she said, I was never going to be her slave. And so she had made up her mind that not only would she, oh, there she is, not only would she um, refuse to become Eliza's slave, no. uh, but I, I, I think also being in Philadelphia for all those years, knowing it was at this moment where yeah. Washington was not going to pursue a third term in office. He, so they had a relatively short period of time left in Philadelphia eight months tops. So it was all coming to an end. Yeah, she's going to lose that. She's going to lose Philly. She's going to something she remembered back in the Virginia. And I argue she didn't even know what that really was. Right. She'd been away so, so long. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, by 1796, when all of this is kind of unraveling, her mother's dead. Her brother Austin is dead. Yeah. You know, so much Nothing of what really she knew. Her. Yeah, she still had some siblings, but half siblings at least. But she grew up in the North. 
You know, she spent those kind of formative yeah. teen, what we call teen years now, in the North. And um, the idea of going back to, to serve Eliza was not anything she wanted to do. And so she says that was the yeah. straw that broke the camel's back. So how did she do it? How did she get out? Mm, she, what do we um, know? What do you think? Well, we know that she relied I mean, she upon. She would have said what she did in her interview. She did, but yeah. she never. She didn't give names, no. of course, because that was a federal offense to mm-hmm. assist a fugitive. She tells us one name. Um, she gives us the name of John Bowles, who was the captain of a ship mm-hmm. um, that would sail her eventually to to Portsmouth. And what I was able to do, another kind of nerdy aha moment <laughs> for me, was being able to track his ships in and out of the the port city of Philadelphia. And so being able to, the fact that she gave us his name, I could track his ship and that he was in Philadelphia at exactly this moment Mm -hmm. and then back in Portsmouth in early June. So So chronologically it all kind of maps out and we know the name of the ship was the Nancy that Mm -hmm. she wrote, you know, that she took to, to Portsmouth. But really it was the free black Philadelphia population that helped her. Mm-hmm. She doesn't tell us our, her, their names, but yeah. she tells us, uh, she calls them the free colored people of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. that she, while the Washingtons were packing up for their summer trip, she was packing up. She didn't know where she was going to go, yeah. but she basically had her things taken to um, free black folks in Philadelphia who helped her escape. Mm. Amazing. All right. So then the dramatic part, the Washingtons try to recover her. Yeah. How does that happen? Why do they do that? Why don't they just let her go? Yeah, you know, um, it's always a question that's asked of me. (laughs) What was it about Ona that made um, them pursue her really for a very long time? And, um, you know, I I don't think there's one answer. I think there are a combination of things Mm -hmm. at play. One, Martha wanted her slave back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was very clear. And, and Washington always sort of writes, as he's attempting to, to, to reclaim her, my wife is very de- desirous of seeing her again. Yeah. And, you know, those things. And, and of course, you have to ask, okay, well, there were three hundred over 300 enslaved people at Mount Vernon. You can't find someone to yeah. replace. But it wasn't just that. It was, um, I think, a feeling of betrayal yeah. that Martha I think it goes um, with that felt. notion of trust. Right? Sure. Like Martha's trusting this person. Right. To have that person betray your trust in such a dramatic public fashion. And in a most, you know, Ona was privy to the most intimate Mm -hmm. talk and actions and everything that took place with them. And think about Martha Washington's real need for privacy and the way that she... Um, you know, destroyed sort of lots of letters and what have yeah. you at the end of her. She wanted to control the narrative. And yeah. who can blame her, right? With Ona out and about, that was a loose end yeah. that needed to be tied up, aside from the fact that that was her property, she'd messed up her plan with yeah. her granddaughter. Right. exactly. All of those well, reasons. i got to find somebody else to give to me. Exactly, right. and, and she does. Um, <laughs> and the other piece, though, is I think more... Mm, more central to the story of power and slaveholding and what does it mean if you lose your slave if your slave runs off you know where that person is mm. yet you're unable to bring them back there there's the issue of control and yeah. power is really contested um and Ona was sort of the thorn in their side, you know. The you see that in Washington. I think that really mm-hmm. comes through in Washington's response when there's this kind of attempted 
you know, I'll give you some terms. You know, and that and, was that was wild. Yeah, right? and, the, and the terms uh, in and of themselves, obviously for a modern year, we're like, mm-hmm. oh, those sound like pretty good terms. And, and even in you know what Washington eventually does, you know, with his own slaves, they, the terms don't seem that out of order. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he's not even willing to kind of look, you're my property. You don't give terms. Right. You know, you, you there's all lots of the other people who didn't run away. You know, and they're not getting anything. So you know, and I, that, that really comes through strong. The kind of presumptions of mastery that you know this allows me to to get what I want. And I think that's a great you, term, you know. like the presumptions of mastery. That yeah. that's exactly it, and the fact that this 22 year old fugitive black woman yeah. is giving him terms. Yeah, right? right, he was the president of the yeah. United States. We could How just throw dare a net you? Over you and drag and you drag back, you back. You know, and then something. and you know I when yeah. I was doing the research, I said, why didn't he just do that? Yeah. You know, why didn't he? And I think. There were a whole bunch of things at play. One, it was the end of his term in office, and I and I'm certain that he was not willing to sully his image. Yeah. I mean, there were that. southern obviously lots of southern masters who employed kidnappers sure. to do just that, find them and then get them, bring them back. Sure, and we we see that, but it was so public. I think. And right? he tried, yeah, and he yeah. tried to do it as <laughs> um, as he wrote discreetly yeah. as possible. But I think you know. What was so um, kind of difficult to work through was that he was not willing to kind of follow the law, his own law, right, about yeah. sort of using attorneys and magistrates and what have you and reclaiming someone he wanted to wanted discretion. He yeah. didn't want people to know. He wanted it to be done quickly, and he wrote as inexpensive as possibly. So he was, you know, always worried yeah. about sort of cash and yeah. um, what that would cost. And so I, I don't think there's one answer about why he pursued her, why. And I don't say it was just him, because I really believe it was both he and Martha, yeah. right? Um, and he makes that sort of very clear in his own writings, was both of them. Uh, I don't know this. Maybe you do. So does he compensate the Custis estate? You know, I don't believe that he does. At least he kind of leaves it for them to get her. You know, but remember, he's pursuing Ona up to three months before he dies. Yeah. So, you know, he didn't know he was going to die in December of 1799 and probably was planning another. We don't know this. Right. But could really have been planning another attempt to get her back. He had recently Mm -hmm. tried with a family member and it was unsuccessful. Um, But. What we do know is that in the his 1799 um, census of, of slaves, yeah. Ona's not accounted for. Yeah. There is, what's really interesting is there is another person named Oni okay. in that, um, that accounting. Her. Oh, I know it's not her. Yeah. It's And what we've been able to, to really sort of figure out was that it was more than likely her niece. So her sister named her daughter Oni. Right, after, I saw that in the genealogy yeah, here. After yeah. her sister had run off. So it was her namesake. And what was so fantastic about, um, you know, at first it was kind of, it made tracking things much more difficult, but I was able to find out what happened to her mm. as well. And, um, you know, I won't ruin it for <laughs> all of our readers. You gotta read the book. But you gotta read the book. Come but on, people. the name, you know, her memory is, Ona's memory is there through her niece. Interesting, yeah. So, all right. So, well, let's talk about, well, why don't I do this first? Not the finest hour for the Washingtons, mm-hmm. you know, right? But maybe the one of the finest hours for Ona, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what is the uh, what is the broader story tell us about, you know, slavery, race, uh, yeah. independence, freedom in this 
moment in time? I think it, you know, the the story about slavery and race is that it's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. And um, although, as you say, it's not the finest hour <laughs> for the Washingtons, <laughs> you know, I think we've spent a lot of time thinking about um, George Washington emancipating his slaves in his will, right, mm-hmm. upon the death of Martha. And so, you know, to that this story complicates that I mean, that's the public story he wants told, right? Right. Right. He doesn't want this story told. Right. So much. Well. Not at all. No, he he doesn't. He's like, be discreet. He doesn't. Don't let people know. We don't, I don't want anyone to know, and I'm not negotiating with her, and bring her back, period. And then I will send a family member up if you guys can handle this properly. I'm going to exit office, become a private citizen, and still go after her. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think it also, it helps us to understand the complexity of human nature and Mm -hmm. slavery and that George Washington was a man whose opinions about slavery changed over time. That's very clear, right? That he grappled with this issue. Mm -hmm. um, Well, I mean, I think there's a big story to be told, which you've helped me kind of understand, I think, is that there's a big story to be told about Philadelphia's effect on Washington. Right. You know, as exactly. Well, you know. and we always talk about the Revolutionary the War's impact on mm-hmm. him and Lafayette and some of these conversations and the Quakers that visit him, but being in Philadelphia as well. What you know. it what Ona was not the only person who was affected by and, that yeah, experience. And I think about so he's in Philadelphia obviously during the war, and then he's there after mm-hmm. the Society of Cincinnati in seventeen eighty four. He's there at the convention, then he's there as president. In that period you're seeing the rise of a free mm-hmm. black community. Mm-hmm. I mean so how much is that in his consciousness? Probably a lot, because Philadelphia in that in the 18th century is people are all cheek by jowl. Yep. It's not like a giant city today. It's everybody's there. And he even you sees know, it with William Market Lee. Market Street, you're going to see. Yeah, you're, you're going to see. Market Street's changing. It's you know? right there. Yeah. And even with his um, closest um, slave, William Lee. You exactly. know, William yeah. Lee goes to Philadelphia prior to this moment, right? And he adopts his last name and mm. his own last name. And, and Washington respects it. He styles it. himself. He styles yeah. himself. And Washington yeah. kind of says, well, you know, my man Billy is calling himself William Lee these days. So it's a recognition yeah. that there's something happening with freedom and Philadelphia. And I think it's a great point that you make that I tried to show in the book that she's not the only one changed. Yeah. He is too. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, you know, he, of course, emancipates um, his enslaved men and women through his will. But I think we also, you know, and that's been the narrative, right? It's like, and in some ways, George Washington has gotten a pass on slavery, I think, because of that. It's sort of like, well, you know, mm-hmm. he did do that. And that's yeah. an important thing to note. But I also ask the question, you know, would he have done that had he had biological children of his own? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if he had to, make, you know, yeah, assure their that's future. wealth, that's yeah, inheritance, absolutely. that's you know, Martha yeah. of course passed all of hers down, and there's of course conversation about whether or not she could have even broken the estate. But, and but he did have an heir. I mean, he, he had did. Bushrod. He, he didn't, did. He gave Mount Vernon to Bushrod. He did. And that was he wasn't a great guy in my eyes <laughs> when it came to slavery. No, not He's not, so a, much. not at the top of the list of. Uh, <laughs> great achievers in the story of, uh, of that. So, um, you know, he did have heirs. I he mean, did. he didn't have, you know, sons and daughters. And I, But I do sense, think that know. there's a difference there, yeah. you know. It, okay. it, we'll never know, yeah. right? But I do think it's worth yeah. mentioning and thinking and just reminding us that Washington, as a man, was changing his opinions. Yeah, his well, and I think, you know, he dies when he dies. You know, we don't know five years after what happens. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting to see he kind of 
he's very much a man of the 19th, I mean, I mean of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. He sort of dies before the 19th century, very strategically. <laughs> you know, but, uh, he refused to Gets him to out go. of a lot of problems, I think. <laughs> but uh, uh, well, All right, well, let's talk about Ona, though. Mm-hmm. So she's in New Hampshire. What's her life like there? And she's obviously, uh, you know, an escaped slave, and that's yeah. a, a treacherous position for a long time, for sure, for yeah. her. Um, but she marries. And, she does. And so what, what is it like? What did you discover about her story there? I think one of um, what I was able to tell was that Ona's experience was much like the rest of the of, of free and fugitive yeah. black men and women, of which in we New know Hampshire. quite a bit. Right. Yeah. So we know that even though these folks were technically free, that their lives were vulnerable and yeah. fragile, and that you know poverty was constant and um, yeah, your opportunities fear. are just. Really minimal, yeah. right? And and the other issue is that it's uh, where she chooses to go is a very white city, right? Mm-hmm. So she gets to Portsmouth, and there there are more black people at Mount Vernon than there were in yeah. all of Portsmouth when she yeah. arrives, and so yeah. maintaining anonymity becomes hard, right? Mm-hmm. She's she's sort of easily spottable, um, yeah. and yeah, Mount Vernon's a black world. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, it's overwhelmingly black compared to, you know, there's five or six white people amongst 300. And it's very different. You know, that's different from Philadelphia, which is different from uh, Portsmouth and Mm -hmm. New York. So once again, we get to see that difference through Ona and through her experiences. So once again, it's about Ona's life in New Hampshire, but we see that, you know, you did need um, to keep your papers on you at all mm-hmm. times, that mm-hmm. there were curfews, that um, while she was able to be employed and what have you, it was, you know, the most kind of mm-hmm. uh, menial labor and, and difficult labor, uh, poorly paid labor. Um, but she is able to carve out a life for herself. Mm-hmm. She is able to marry, to choose someone herself to have a legal marriage and, mm-hmm. you know, to find her. So did uh, she have heirs? What do we? She had three children. Okay. And do we um, know who they are? are they? We do. Well, so. You don't want me to give it all away, but I will say this. I will say this. <laughs> I've only gotten through half the book. If you look at my, my dog-eared book, I'm up to page 83. Okay. You'll see. It's, she has heirs. Um, okay. But what we find out about those heirs, um, Try not to ruin well, it. Volume two. We'll have to wait. We'll have to wait. No, don't tell us. That's fine. We'll, we'll, that, she that does have it, children. It's tangible. And yeah. what we know, you know, another sort of moment when I found um, the advertisement or the wedding announcement for her and her husband, Jack Staines, which was in the Portsmouth, the uh, New Hampshire Gazette. Mm. And, you know, I'd kind of seen that, bef- I'd seen an image of that, and but I went and pulled the full paper. Um, because, and I think this is really important for researchers, for graduate students. Yeah. You know, it's it's great to have right. what's these, going on at that time. Right. Yeah. It's it's great to have these searchable um, uh, newspaper databases, what have you. And it's great to look at the little findings, but you got to pull the whole paper out. You got to yeah. see everything. Yeah. And so I see in one column. Jack Stain's man of color or something. Jack Stain's married to Oni Judge, and it's spelled with a G. Um, mm. But two columns over is Washington basically giving a farewell to the mm. citizens of New Hampshire. 
And so how like amazing is that yeah. to have Washington be issuing, this was January of 1797. Yeah. So he was about to leave office and mm -hmm. he issues his farewell. And then two columns over is his yeah. runaway who's basically yeah. saying, I'm getting married. And I didn't even use a fake name, which was <laughs> mm -hmm. incredible um, is, yeah. to me. It is amazing mm -hmm. well, and that they covered it in the paper. Well, I think, you know, part of that was about just listing everyone. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, there's also a little bit of, you know, this this is definitely a book about resistance. It's a mm -hmm. book about recovery, of course, recovering the lives of people that we know little about. Yeah. But it's also about a story of resistance and, um, you know, that right there, whether she meant it or not, of course, is resistance. Well, well clearly people are going to know her story, and obviously in that area, because somebody at some point is going to interview her and publish it. So how does that come about? So she, um, she maintains her fugitive status the entirety of her life. It's part of the reason why the book is called Never Caught. I, yeah. you know, at first when I gave that title, um, hated it you know the the folks at the at press? the press they hated it what they want because they were like you're giving away the story oh, okay. and i was <laughs> well, like but right. you yeah, know what it's sort of like 12 years a slave all right well that tells you he's <laughs> only gonna be a slave for 12 years so that <laughs> sort of gives the story away too right. but sure, really times. this book is about what it meant to never be caught. Yeah. And yeah. I was very clear. Because that was a, part of, a big part of her status. Right. You know, her she life, yeah. was never free. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the words that were suggested to me in terms of titles, free, freedom, those kinds of things, mm -hmm. no, she wasn't. She was simply never caught. Um, and she does manage to stay away from slave catchers and um, the agents of the Washingtons. and. Um, yeah. They die way before she does, and she lives for nearly half a century as a fugitive. Um, and then towards the end of her life, at the kind of peak of the abolitionist movement, mm -hmm. um, she's approached by um, two abolitionist newspapers. One, the Granite Freeman in 1845. In May of 1845, she there's an interview published with her. What mm -hmm. was so great, once again, another reason for looking through the hard copies of newspapers, was that the very next edition of the Granite Freeman goes on to talk about this new book that's come out written by this guy named Frederick Douglass, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So in the the one the the yeah. the uh, so that's newspaper the world before she's all of a sudden in a yeah, world. she's yeah. in whether she wanted yeah. to be or not. Yeah. I don't think. You well, know, you you looking back, mm -hmm. see, you know, it's a tremendous thing. Yeah, she did, she yeah. uh, she was telling yeah. her story yeah. at a moment when the nation was really willing and knee deep in abolition, right? Mm -hmm. And then two years later, the Liberator yeah. comes and and interviews her as well, and it's really shortly before she dies. And so the the accounts are similar, slightly different, but um, similar. And they, those interviews give us, um, give the reader an opportunity to know what she said, what she thought. Right. And of course, yeah. we have to account for the tremendous amount of time in between when she was interviewed and when she ran away. It was 50, over 50 years. Um, but I argue that there's some moments in your life you just don't forget. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been shown from memory research, too, is that there mm -hmm. are periods that you elderly people can remember quite well that were, you know, impactful moments in mm -hmm. their lives where it can be recalled, you know, even Quickly. if they can't remember what they ate for breakfast, you know, a week ago. That's my which, life, uh, or yeah, yesterday. Exactly. <laughs> so those kind ago. of those, those traumatic and interesting yeah. moments. Yeah, and she yeah. gives, so she gives us 
a narrative about being a member of the enslaved household of the mm. Washingtons mm. in a way that we really don't have from anyone else, really. Um, yeah, there's some fake uh, narratives mm. of like people who claim to be like the, you know, the the, the uh, I don't even know what the name is, like the nurse mm-hmm. of Washington. Mm-hmm. And that's when they were like 800 years old. And yeah. they lived for, <laughs> you know, there's like a series of these people who mm-hmm. claim to be this. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so there's some sort of strange genre of so, like, trying to recover the Washington's. But to my lives. to my knowledge, no one's been able to make those. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think they're. Yeah, I don't think they're mm-hmm. real. I think this is real. I mm-hmm. don't think that's. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I mean, they, you know, it's interesting in that sense. You know, Ona is going to be surrounded by Washingtoniana her whole life too. I mean, he's hard to escape mm-hmm. in the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, his portraits are all going to be all over, sure, commodified, sure. and all that stuff. So that must have been a really interesting. Yeah. You know, dynamic there where she kind of knew the real Washingtons in a way that nobody else did. And she was also, she knew that she could offer testimony. And it was also right. at a moment in her life where she had nothing left to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, she yeah. was elderly. No one was coming after her, right. you know, exactly. in, in, as a 74-year-old woman or whatever. The, right. <laughs> those days were behind her. Um, her life was still extremely difficult and mm-hmm. fragile. Mm-hmm. But, you know... Sometimes, you know, I've seen this with my older relatives. You get to a point in your life where you just are going to speak your truth no matter <laughs> what. You don't really care oh, anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I usually would annoying argue, to the people around you. <laughs> yeah, but thank God Ona did it because it gave <laughs> us, right. you know, what we needed. Yeah. And she, she told her story. So I'm just yeah. ecstatic that we, we have this moment to hear her voice, to know her story. And, you know, I just want her to be known the way we know a Douglas or a mm. Tubman or, you know, that she's one. I've done this work of recovery and I'm thrilled that people are interested in it. Well, congratulations. The book has been really widely read and greatly regarded. And, uh, of course, uh, you're very kind to mention that Mount Vernon right now has a new exhibit out on the enslaved population here at Mount Vernon, including a nice section on Own a Judge. So uh, please come out, everybody, to see it. But we wish you great luck with this. And uh, 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 you're going to speak tonight. It's going to be recorded by C-SPAN. So everybody out there, go out and look for that as well. So thank (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.